Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. It's Friday, December 4th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Zevia. Zevia is the zero-calorie, naturally sweetened soda that's clearly different. It has no sugar and no calories, but it's still somehow really delicious. Zevia is available in 15 different flavors like cream soda, black cherry, cola, ginger ale, and even tonic water. Always zero calories, Zevia makes amazing guilt-free cocktails. Whiskey and ginger ale, gin and tonic, and so many more. Plus, Zevia is giving away thousands of free six-packs. To check it out, go to zevia.com slash podcast. That's Z-E-V-I-A dot com slash podcast. I really like Zevia, by the way. As somebody that drinks a lot of Diet Coke, I really like Zevia, but I've never had it as a mixer. Now I'm going to try it out. And this episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd, or in my case, all three? Then this is the subscription box for you. For less than $20 a month, you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com minds and enter code MINDS to save $3 off any new subscription. Not that long ago, and depending on where you live, not so far away, Loot Crate blasted off into a voyage across the galaxy, searching the far reaches of space to find universally awesome gear. Using December's Star Wars The Force Awakens loot as the launch pad, we landed on some equally cosmic items from Halo 5 and more. With an exclusive Funko Pop, ooh, Funko Pop, and an exclusive shirt in this month's crate, this is the loot that you're looking for. Remember, you only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash minds and enter code minds to save $3 on your subscription today. For this week's interview, we are launching an episode that we've kind of been sitting on for about a month since the Bay Area Science Festival, when I had the extreme pleasure of interviewing one of my idols, uh, one of the giants in neuroscience, Dr. Robert Sapolsky, who is a neuroendocrinologist, professor of biology and neuroscience at Stanford University. 
He's one of these people whose work you read about when you're an undergraduate, and it makes you want to become a neuroscientist. He not only tackles some really important questions about the human brain and human condition, but he also, for the vast majority of of his career, spent four months of the year in the field studying baboons. It just sounded to me like the most amazing life, and he would come up with these amazing insights, really, really interesting work. And of course, he was able to communicate them in a way that an undergraduate like me found it absolutely fascinating. So I was really excited when I got the opportunity to ask him questions about his work, about his current projects, and so forth. And we felt that it would be great to to release this particular episode in December. Why? Because December is stressful. It is, it is not just stressful. It is the most stressful month. Yeah, I always find like I, every year I think I'm not going to plan anything in December. I'm just going to have this wonderful holiday experience. And every year you get sick. There's tons of traffic. There's pressure to buy gifts. You feel like you're running from one thing to another. It just feels like stress. Yeah, it does. TSA. Those are the three words that equate to stress to me. So who better to have on the show than someone who's made an entire career studying the effect that stress has on our bodies? And of course, our bodies include our brain. I'll just add why zebras don't get ulcers is one of the best science books that I've ever read in my life. And I encourage everyone to check it out. It's really great. It's been on our shelf for, you know, nearly two decades now, (laughs) which is kind of scary. In any case, this particular week's episode was a collaboration with the monthly podcast called Origin Stories run by the Leakey Foundation. They hold a monthly live event at Public Works in San Francisco. So if you're in the Bay Area, you should definitely check them out. Last month's guest was Alison Gopnik, another veteran of Inquiring Minds. Uh, You can find out more at leakeyfoundation.org. Both the Leaky Foundation and the podcast Origin Stories cover topics about human evolution and behavior. They run the very famous Being Human conferences. And so as part of the Leaky Foundation's monthly event, um, Dr. Sapolsky gave a talk that you can listen to on the Origin Stories podcast. And then to hear the Q&A after the talk, that's this week's episode. So that's our interview for this week. Kishore, what... What caught your eye in the news? I think one of the biggest news stories of this year has been CRISPR. We've talked about it on this podcast an endless number of times. We've had a number of guests talk about it. And this week marked the Gene Editing Summit held by the National Academy of Sciences. This is a a summit that featured uh, 10 scientists and two bioethicists that were the absolute leaders in the field. Jennifer Doudna, who is largely credited with inventing the, the CRISPR Technique Feng Zhang, who's uh, at M- MIT at the Broad Institute, who's largely seen as the one that's sort of pioneering the latest work in it. George Church, Eric Lander from the Broad Institute, uh, heavyweights across the field were at the summit and they ho- wholly came together to address the idea of human gene editing. And this is a, a tremendous topic. We talked about the the lab in China. Uh, that actually did this on embryos. These were non-viable embryos uh, uh, for listeners that may not remember this story. Uh, and they were not successful uh, for the most part, but they did in you know one or two cases actually edit the DNA sequence successfully using the CRISPR-Cas9 Cas9 system. Now, this brings up all sorts of moral and ethical quandaries. And this gene editing summit was designed to come out with a statement on how we... Uh, guide research into the future. 
And there are some really interesting points that came out of this. So there was a question to the panelists during this summit that best typified, I, I think, the tension here. And it was from a mother of a child that died from a fetal birth defect. And she said, quote, he was six days old and he suffered every day. He had seizures every day. If you have the skills and knowledge to fix these diseases, then freaking do it. And it tells this attention like that we have the potential through this technique to actually deliver some medical results for people that have really specific um, uh, genetic diseases. We don't know if it'll work, but there's some there's some potential there when we're talking about Huntington's disease and other pretty rare genetic diseases uh, that we can address in, in certain ways. And then on the flip side, we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be do using a technique that we know very little about on any sort of human tissue line. Well, I mean, I guess I see two different sides here, right? There's the treatment route in which, you know, especially in the case of terminally ill patients, sometimes a last resort is better than no resort, right? Even if, you know, I mean, obviously do everything we can to make sure that it's a viable potential um, or has, you know, some some promise. But, you know, I, I yeah, I can see that avenue. But on the other side, you know, the, I think I think for me, the ethical quandary is, is how is this going to lead to enhancement? Or is it right? And well, let's put this in a frame that is very uh, near and dear to your um, intellectual heart. So let's talk about uh, APOE4 uh, for Alzheimer's. Should we be yeah. thinking about CRISPR-Cas9 for, for editing that particular gene? I think we should if we can if we have some evidence that we can prevent Alzheimer's disease. I mean, that's 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 a holy grail, right? I mean, that's that's something that I think a lot of people are really looking at and would end a lot of suffering. Now, the question is, if a side effect of that is that you create children who are more intelligent and now you have the quandary of like, does everybody get access to this particular enhancement? You know, I think that's where sort of that's why I feel like we need to do more talking about how are we going to apply this technique and where are we going to draw the line and, and how are we going to ensure that this just doesn't create a very privileged and even more privileged society? So I think there there's strata here for us to talk about. There's designer babies, which you which you just referenced. Uh, no, we can't have a system that allows us to get to a point where we're talking about designer babies in any sort of near term sort of way. But, you know, how do you how do you where do you draw that line? Like, I remember, you know, when when I was pregnant, and we got genetic testing done. I mean, it's not it's a pretty gray area, right? There were a lot of, you know, yeah, things that came back where we had a higher, you know, 40 percent higher risk of a particular genetic disease than the average. But that was still only one in a thousand. So, like, do yeah, we do the gene editing? It's gray. So why would you do gene editing there when? And it's so immature at this point. I mean, we're talking about a technique that's been around for four years, maybe. And we don't know, uh, in a lot of these cases, these genes don't have singular effects. So, you know, removing one may improve this, this sort of genetic uh, defect. But is it later in life going to cause, you know, a, a, an effect where it doesn't knock down cancer or something? You know, some other... Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm being a little, you know, hyperbolic here, but it, it illustrates a point it, genes don't have singular functions. And I think that's why, you know, it's going to be hard to get people to sign up to have designer babies anytime soon because yeah. of this unknown. So right? I think that's the the big, you know, outlandish one that I don't think we're going to get to. And basically, the outcome of the summit is is saying we shouldn't do anything on human tissue in that way. They they avoided words like ban, uh, but they pretty much said like, nope, not on humans in this way. At the same time, they were really 
keen on people doing more work on somatic somatic cells. So now we're talking about somatic, we're talking about really cells that aren't going to leave your body. So we're not talking about designer babies where we're engineering embryos to grow into into viable humans where we're talking about things outside of, of the body. Now, if we're talking about editing somebody with APOE4, uh, where there's no risk of it going anywhere, we're doing an edit straight into another human, they were very di- they talked very differently about that. And that's a really interesting distinction for us to look at. That is still very aggressive, given the maturity of the technique. Uh, and I don't think we're going to see it anytime soon. But at least supporting research that's going in that direction, that's the whole point of this technique to a certain extent. So I think they, they were very forward in saying, like, research has to continue. In fact, leading off this summit, I, I felt like weird timing, but Feng Zhang released a paper indicating that he was able to increase the efficiency of the targeting of CRISPR-Cas9 by a significant amount, which has been the problem going back in time, like this cut and paste, like the find in order to do the cut and paste has been very all over the map. It's been um, pretty inaccurate. And now they're starting to refine that up where it's getting to the point where, oh, okay, we got some, we got something here. And so that's the paper that opened this this summit. So I think we're going to see more in that vein. And so the the distinction they've created, I think, is is an important one. So the somatic cell one seems to make a lot of sense to me. They want money to pour in to continue the research. You know, the scientists want to do it. Yeah, I mean, and I I don't really have an ethical quandary with that at all, because it just, to me, seems like a different treatment. And, you know, cancer is largely a genetic disease. Why can't we treat cancer with its cause, right? With changing the genes? I mean, that seems to me the logical way in which we are going to come anywhere close to, you know, a viable treatment or a potential cure for a lot of different cancers. So, you know, I don't I don't have a problem with that. I, I don't have as much of an ethical quandary about it, though I understand why people have ethical quandaries. Eric Lander made, made the argument that I think it rings most true to me, is in most cases, put the Alzheimer's one aside, in most cases, in most near-term cases that we're talking about for human use of this, rare genetic disorders, the key term is rare. We're talking about a really small population that will ever be positively impacted by doing human research at this stage. Now, he might be saying something really different in, I think, you know, two to three years. But as for now. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I you know, I think that's that's a, an issue of, of sort of where do you put the funding? Where do you put the, the efforts? But, you know, you also, I think, have a different situation when there is someone who is very clearly terminally ill and has a short lifespan. Right. And so you throw the kitchen sink at that particular person. Speaking so. of funding, there's some indication um, from the. Uh, uh, from China that they're going to invest $400 million into this area in the in the coming years. So money is coming. And uh, we are, I, we've talked about this before. I think the real interesting story that's going to emerge, interesting might be a stretch, there's a patent war coming uh, between the UC system and MIT. But ar- 400 this. million? What is that in NASA budgetary uh, coins? <laughs> <laughs> For any of our regular listeners, seems like a you know, drop in the bucket. <laughs> it's definitely a drop in the bucket in the NASA bucket. Well, 
Anyway, my that's the story that caught my eye this week, and this will be super short because it's just a super short story, um, was one in which you know how we know that obesity is in, to, to some extent hereditary, right? Uh, and this particular uh, study caught my eye because it takes a little bit of the onus off of the mother, and those are always my favorite kinds of studies. Um, but this one showed that, in fact, sperm carry some information about whether or not uh, the person who produced them is overweight. So in a study published in Cell Metabolism, it turns out that spermatozoa from obese men have a different epigenetic signature than those in lean men. And in particular, the genes that seem to be involved are those controlling brain development and function. So this seems, you know, kind of important. But also, these are genes that are potentially involved in appetite. So it's possible that men have an influence on whether or not a child will become obese and that men can do something about that. Uh, all right. Let me ask the, the kind of the silly question. So if if the gene is getting changed and that's being uh, passed in sperm, when does that happen? Is that basically like if I get fat and like if I get obese... When does that change the genetic structure actually happen? Well, I think that's still a good question. I think there's still obviously a lot of questions that need to be answered. It turns out that one of the lead authors in the study was influenced by an earlier finding in which the availability of food in um, a small Swedish village during a particular famine correlated with the risk of the grandchildren of these individuals getting cardiometabolic diseases. So he wondered whether the changes in nutrition that these grandparents were undergoing were passed on in an epigenetic way um, to their kids. And so he they did this particular study. Obviously, we still need to know, you know, whether, you know, exactly when this change happens and is reflected in the spermatozoa. But for one, it's interesting to see, you know, on the heels of the um, American Pediatric Association's recommendation that pregnant women should not drink an, a drop of alcohol, not a single drop was, you know, it's their latest recommendation. And there's a lot of focus on the mother's diet. But here we see that it's not just uh, the mother's diet that is of consideration, but in fact, that some of these recommendations should be directed to the well, fathers. Well, to be fair, it's the father's diet before they have sex. Like, afterwards, you can let yourself go. <laughs> you have a point. <laughs> yes, there's a timing issue. But the question is, how long before they have sex, right? Is this like the last month? Can you just like, you know, eat clean for a month and it'd be okay? Or does it have to be years? I'm more you know? interested in the letting yourself go afterwards. <laughs> All right. Well, that was what caught my eye this week. So um, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Robert Sapolsky. This episode is sponsored by Zevia. Zevia is a zero-calorie, naturally sweetened soda that's clearly different. It has no sugar and no calories, but it is still somehow really delicious. Zevia is available in 15 different flavors like cream soda, black cherry, cola, ginger ale, and even tonic water. Always zero calories, Zevia makes amazing guilt-free cocktails for the holidays. Whiskey and ginger ale, gin and tonic, I'm sure you can think of many, many more. Plus, Zevia is giving away thousands of free six-packs. To check it out, go to zevia.com slash podcast. That's Z-E-V-I-A dot com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? I know Kishore would. 
<laughs> then this is the subscription box for you. For less than $20 a month, you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com mines and enter code mines to save $3 on any new subscription. Not that long ago, and depending on where you live, not so far away, Loot Crate blasted off into a voyage across the galaxy, searching the far reaches of space to find universally awesome gear. Using December's Star Wars The Force Awakens loot <laughs> as the launch pad, no, so excited, we landed on some equally cosmic items from Halo 5 and more. With an exclusive Funko Pop, no idea what that is, and an exclusive shirt in this month's crate, this is the loot you're looking for. Basically, Loot Crate is like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with an awesome present every month. I need more friends like that. You have until the 19th at 9pm Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate, and when the cutoff happens, that's it, it's over. So go to lootcrate.com mines and enter code MINES to save $3 on your new subscription today. I think we're getting you a Loot Crate so you can find out what Funko Pop is. I definitely want to find out what Funko Pop is. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Robert Sapolsky. Glad to be here. I guess I'm supposed to say that, but I'm glad to be here. <laughs> wow, that's the first time that's really backfired on me. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> so for our listeners, I just want you to know that we are at a live taping of an event as part of the Bay Area Science Festival here in San Francisco. So any ambient noise you hear might be because there have been lots of baboon martinis consumed by our audience. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about your work on stress, which is how I first discovered some of your um, brilliant ideas, and specifically how those of us who are working in an urban environment and somewhat stressful jobs, what, how are our lives different now, perhaps, than they were 10, 20 years ago in terms of our physiological response to the stress in our work, or is it just the same old thing? Obviously, the answer is yes and no. Um, what I've mostly studied over the years is stress physiology. In my lab work, uh, studying how one class of stress hormones damages the brain, has something to do with brain aging, uh, kills neurons, what can you do about it, can you do gene therapy against it, totally depressing work. Um, and my baboon work over the years was looking at what your social rank and what your personality and what your patterns of social affiliation have to do with who's got the elevated blood pressure and who's gotten the rotten cholesterol levels and the you know, irregular cycles and immune sort of problems. What does psychosocial factors have to do with the stress response? Um, so all of that is predicated on the fact that this is like the archetypal example of we've got the same physiological system as every other mammal out there, birds, reptiles, etc. same exact stress hormones, and we secrete the stuff for psychological reasons. And the punchline about everything related to stress and health is the system didn't evolve for being chronically activated. It's a system that evolved for somebody is attempting to eat you and you have to run very fast and everything you do with your stress hormones at that point are brilliant for getting you through that disaster. You mobilize energy to your muscles, you turn off unessential things, you know, growth, reproduction, there's a lion chasing you, 
ovulate some other time. Don't bother right now. All built around do it tomorrow. If there is a tomorrow, you think more clearly. Your immune system is sharper. All of this is perfect if you're being stressed like a normal mammal, which is to say a short-term physical crisis. And where we get into trouble is we and other sort of psychosocially sophisticated primates, we're smart enough to invent chronic psychological stress. And we secrete that hormone that's perfect for diverting energy to your thigh muscles, and we secrete it thinking about mortality. And that's not what it evolved for. And if you chronically activate the stress response, there's all these diseases that you're more at risk for. You know, run for your life from a lion and your blood pressure is 180 over 120, this is a good thing. Be psychologically stressed in traffic on 101 and your blood pressure is 180 over 120, this is not a good thing. It's not doing you any sort of advantage there. What humans succumb to are diseases of chronic stress, of living well enough and long enough to pay the price that we could chronically activate the stress response. And everything about us as a species and westernized humans in particular just says, this is not what it evolved for. And these days, we have all this pressure put on ourselves to find work that is meaningful and you know, is our passion, and there's nothing else more that we'd want to do, and so we should just do that one thing that we're really great at and that brings us a lot of love. And although, while that sounds like a really great ideal to strive for, I think there's a lot of people that are stressed out by this. Um, enormously. Yes. Well, here we are in the center of the universe for gentrification and a sort of striving and a sense that good is never good enough and there's always something more to achieve. And, you know, we are just examples of how you can take a physiological system that's meant for a short-term crisis and you do it chronically and it just gnaws away at us. Most of the diseases we succumb to now are not diseases of poor hygiene and poor nutrition. We're not getting done in by scarlet fever anymore. We're getting done in by diseases that are caused by or be made worse by stress, diseases that chronically eat away at us. And these are diseases of taking a mammalian mindset and applying it in an utterly novel westernized way. Are there any baboon equivalents of this search for meaning? Um, yes, but they're usually pretty futile. Um, <laughs> well, maybe framing it a little bit differently, um, in terms of hierarchy, sort of when I first started doing my work out there, what I expected to see was dominance rank completely determined physiology. Like, if you get a choice in the matter, you don't want to be a low-ranking baboon, you're going to have every stress-related disease on Earth. And in a very broad sort of way, that turns out to be the case. But then when you look more closely, there's just much, much more interesting psychological stuff going on. It's not just your rank. It's what your rank means. It's what your rank means in this particular social context. It's the personality filters that you have. And essentially what you're left with is there are baboons out there who are number two in the hierarchy and the single most important fact in that guy's life is there's still somebody dominant to him. 
And there's guys out there who are number 19 in a hierarchy of 20. And the most important thing for them is, thank God, there's a number 20 I could dump on whenever I'm in a bad mood. And remarkably, number 19 is going to have lower stress hormone levels than number two in that setting. They see watering holes as half empty or half full. And that turns out to be more powerful than the rank, the psychological state, the social interpretation as to what rank is about. So in that regard, they may not quite be self-actualized or great meditators, but at least they can do like subtle psychological things with their station in life. So along with stress is this related concept of motivation. Um, and this, you know, what sort of keeps us motivated to do the things that we do. And as you mentioned, ranking has a big influence on your motivation. So what can we learn from low-ranking baboons that are happy and not stressed that we can apply uh, to aspects in our life over which we don't have control? Or is there anything? Well, yes, fortunately, there. of course I said that. I said that to the Leaky Foundation each time I asked them for money. Thank you for it. Um, <laughs> they could teach us much about the human condition. Actually, they can, because what you see is those personality features. If you have a choice in the matter between being an alpha male baboon with nobody who grooms you willingly or number 20 with lots of social affiliation, you're going to be much healthier in the latter case. When you look at the personalities of these guys and personality, along with culture, personality is another word that used to get you denied tenure. And now that's as trendy of a term in primatology as in culture. Animals besides us have different temperaments, have different propensities towards reacting emotionally in different ways. Some are high strung, some are low strung. They differ as to how readily they start fights, whether they take out aggression on innocent bystanders. Do they groom a lot? Do they play with kids? Stable personality differences. And what you see in terms of like what personality style works for a male baboon, like I could go down to a Silomar on the weekends and give like hot tub seminars to baboon executives, telling them how to be more relaxed in their lifestyles in terms of doing this. Here's what goes into being a successful male baboon in terms of having a low stress response. Can you tell the difference between the big things and the little things? What do I mean by that? You're a baboon, you're sitting there, you're minding your own business, your worst rival on the planet shows up five feet away and threatens you in your face. This is a big thing. What do you do? You stop doing whatever you were doing, you take this defensive vigilant stance. In contrast, you're sitting there minding your own business and your worst rival on the whole planet shows up and takes a nap 50 yards away. Do you get crazed at that point? The amazing thing is your average male baboon gets his behavior just as disrupted as having the guy napping over there as threatening you in his face. This is like, look at him. I hate that guy. He's doing that. Look at the way he's snoring. He's doing that just to get at me. I hate that guy. This is type A personality. This is seeing threats that other individuals don't. If you're a male who tends to interpret your rival taking a nap as disruptive to your behavior, you're going to have twice the stress hormone levels in your bloodstream as the males who could tell the difference between this is nothing, this is the big thing. 
Second, if it is a big thing and the guy is threatening you in your face, do you sit there and passively abdicate control and allow him to start the inevitable fight, or do you at least seize some control in the situation and you're the one who initiates it? Passively abdicate control, twice the stress hormone levels. You've had the fight. Can you tell the difference between whether you won or lost? This seems rather fundamental. Do you behaviorally distinguish? If you've won, do you go and groom with somebody? If you've lost, do you go beat up somebody smaller? Or whether you win or lose, do you go and like take it out on somebody smaller? Your average male baboon is just as likely to displace aggression onto an innocent bystander after winning a fight than after losing. They can't even tell if it's a promotion or not or a demotion. If you can't distinguish between a good outcome and a bad one, higher stress hormone levels. Finally, if it is a bad outcome, do you have an effective coping strategy? Okay, not do you go and meditate, do you go and beat up somebody smaller? Half of baboon aggression is displacement aggression. If you go instead and mope by yourself in the forest, higher stress hormone levels. Look at this. Can you tell the difference between the big things and the little things? If it is a big thing, do you at least have some control over it? Can you tell if the outcome's good or bad? And if the outcome's bad, do you at least have some coping strategies? And you look at the guys who were like this, and they outlive their cohort by two to three years, and they have lower stress hormone levels, and you go back in the records, and they were like that when they were adolescents who first showed up in the troop. And this is far more predictive of lifespan in these animals than what rank they achieve. So you brought up meditation, which is a really hot, sexy topic in neuroscience right now and everywhere, um, as a panacea for our stress. And do you, is your impression that there really is something special about meditation or certain types of meditation, say mindfulness practice? Or do you think that this is a fad that will go away and it depends on, as you said, um, the upbringing of the young baboon? Yes, it's one of those big, it depends. Okay, stress management. Here's, here's what you can say. Collectively, stress management techniques, meditation, TM, mindfulness, aerobic exercise, prayer, playing your clarinet, whatever. Collectively, they work. They work as in they can lower blood pressure, they can lower cholesterol levels, they can work. They come with a bunch of requirements though. First, you can't save your stress management for the weekend. It's got to be something you do almost daily. Second, you can't do your stress management when you're on hold on the phone for 30 seconds. You've got to set out time in circumstances where you can't say no to anything. You need to say no to something and set out this day, daily time to do that. The third requirement is like so obvious until you think about how easy it is to not remember this, but it's got to be a stress management technique that you actually like enjoy doing. I mean, like, the studies are absolutely clear. Transcendental meditation has great effects on health. Nonetheless, if I were to do 20 minutes of TM a day, I would have a stroke by this weekend. It is so antithetical to what I'm about. So, like, it's great your friends advocate it. Read the fine print. Find something that works for you. Okay, here's an example of this. Take lab rats and let them run in a running wheel, and they enjoy this. And they make new neurons in their brain, adult rats in a part of the brain called the hippocampus, that's great. Now, take a second rat, psychology jargon, yoke the second rat to the first one. Put the second rat in a running wheel that it can't get out of. Every time the first rat chooses to run, the second rat is forced to run. They get the exact same exercise, 
voluntary versus involuntary. This guy is increasing the birth of new neurons in his brain. This guy is decreasing it. If it's a source of stress management, the guy's saying, what, what am I doing in this running wheel? This is not a source of stress management. This is a source of stress. So it's got to be something that works. Finally, do not believe anybody who says it has been scientifically proven that their brand of stress management works better than anybody else's. Watch your wallet at that point. It is not based on real science. Well, I guess I really better stop making my husband go to Soul Cycle with me. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I wanna, Does he like it? <laughs> I think that's... Um, I want to call out uh, one of the questions from our Twitter feed, which is blowing up. So thanks, everyone, for submitting these. This is from Eduardo Brisson Zero. And he poses the question of, you, you've talked about things that are similar between uh, primates and humans, between other types of animals and humans. And it seems like every time we search for a difference, there's you know some impetus for some group somewhere to find some species that does the same thing. So... What do you think is physically different about our brains that maybe um, allows for some of these unprecedented things that you talk about? Okay. Far and away, the single most interesting thing about our human brains is this brain region called the frontal cortex. I have spent like 30 years studying the hippocampus. I love the hippocampus, it's been good to me, all of that. Nonetheless, if I had to start over, I would be studying the front. Hippocampus is great for learning and memory, you know, that's useful. That's the part of the brain that's blown out of the water in Alzheimer's, this is a good thing. Frontal cortex, though, is so much more interesting. What the frontal cortex does is it makes you do the harder thing when it's the right thing to do. And it's the most recently evolved part of our brain. We've got more frontal cortex than any other species. It's about gratification postponement and impulse control and emotional regulation. Destroy somebody's frontal cortex and they become a serial murderer, that sort of thing. An, an astonishing percentage of men on death row in this country have a history of damage to their frontal cortex from concussive head trauma. You get that part of the brain damaged and you know the difference between right and wrong, but you still can't control your behavior. It's the most human part of the brain, the most recently evolved. When you look at the parts of our brain where we express genes that are unique to that brain region, more of that goes on in the frontal cortex than any other brain region. We have more unique gene expression there than in any other brain region versus other primates, other apes. It's the part of the brain that defines us. What's really interesting is it's also the last part of the brain to fully mature. One of the things that everybody used to get hammered into their head is your brain is basically wired up by the time you're a few years old. Your frontal cortex is not fully online until you're about 25 years old. Think about how much a freshman year of college that explains right off the bat. This is incredibly explanatory. It's the last brain region to fully mature. That has a huge, huge implication. If this is the last brain region to fully come online, it's the part of the brain that's least constrained by genes and most shaped by environment and experience. 
And it's not by chance. The frontal cortex, its wiring is not fancier than any other part of the cortex. It's not like it's intrinsically a more complicated construction project to make a frontal cortex than a visual cortex. We have been selected to delay maturation on it because we need 25 years to learn the contextual cues for whatever our culture is. The frontal cortex evolved to be freed from genes and to be shaped by environment. So it is the defining part of the brain for us as humans. Yeah, but the hippocampus grows new neurons. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and it's my favorite brain region. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a cool part of the brain. <laughs> but yes, I totally get where you're coming from. And so that kind of brings me to this idea that, okay, so we have this mature frontal cortex that comes on very late, and we tend to think of ourselves as largely behaving rationally, but we have so much evidence that not only do we not behave rationally most of the time, but the vast majority of our behavior is actually controlled by parts of our brain to which we have no conscious access. And one of those things is categorization, which is something that you've talked about. And in this month's Nautilus magazine, you pose a really interesting question, which is that now it seems as though if you ask people whether in the near future our concept of gender is going to be fluid, what would most people say? And you have an answer. It depends. <laughs> um, it was, that's not what you wrote in the article. <laughs> that's true. Okay, but I'm waffling a little bit now. Okay, what the article was prompted by is... You know, we're, we're in the era of, oh my God, what is her name? Who used to Caitlin be Caitlyn Jenner. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. What am I wasting my time on in science if I can't keep track of the important stuff? Yes, we're in the era of that individual and the orange is black is the new black actress. I'm showing how unhip I am here and I'm just like doing any cachet from being in this place. Okay, we're in the, suddenly America is conscious of transgendered individuals. Suddenly, that's trendy. Suddenly, it's occurring to people that dichotomizing by gender may not be all that clear cut and people are be anyone who's a biologist is known for a long time gender is on a continuum sex is on a continuum sexual identity the steps between your chromosomal sex determination and your gonadal and your endocrine and your psychosocial, there are so many steps in between where things can change that it is in no way guaranteed it's on a continuum. Something like 2% of births, people are born with sexually ambiguous genitalia, intersexual status, there's all these disorders, and of course that immediately opens a can of worms as to whether one should even be pathologizing this. There are all sorts of these endocrine disorders where you have people who are genetically XY, and they have had they have given birth to individuals. They have testes that are hidden somewhere up in their stomachs that haven't done anything since the first trimester of fetal life. There's all these ways in which gender is on a continuum. And one of the most interesting versions of it is with transgender individuals. There's a whole bunch of parts of the brain that the jargon is are sexually dimorphic. The size or the chemical makeup or the function of this part of the brain differs by sex. 
not sufficiently so that like you could measure the size of this nucleus of the hypothalamus and by knowing the size, you know the gender of that individual that the brain came from, but where statistically on the average, this area is bigger in females than males, this area has more axons in males than females with functional significance. Okay, so there are gender differences in brain structure. They're not big differences, but they are there on a populational level. So a whole bunch of studies now have looked at the brains of transgender individuals, asking what are the sexually dimorphic regions of their brains like. And the studies are absolutely in consensus that what you see is the person's brain is that of the sex they say they have always felt themselves to be, not of the one they were born with. And what you suddenly realize there is the mindset that we often have about transgender is these are individuals who think they are of a different sex than they actually are. That's not the case. These are individuals who were born with a body of a different sex than they actually are. And when you look at that, this is just on an amazing continuum. So you see that and you see like beginning of recognition of that. You look at Facebook, what's it, 56, 58 different gender terms. You can have your gender fluid, gender intergender. I can't even remember all of them. Some of them are just so interesting as to what they imply. And then there's a not specified or other suggesting that there's some individuals out there where 57 gender categories isn't enough and they still have to check gender other there sort of thing like so the question in this article was like as we get that many more celebrities sort of revelations about their sort of sexual identities and stuff are we a few decades away from gender just seeming like this completely like irrelevant concept and I think what I sort of concluded in the article was despite all of that this dichotomizing of gender in our heads is not going anywhere because it is an incredibly fast automatic categorization that we do. You put somebody in a brain scanner and you flash up pictures at subliminal speeds, it takes you about 80 milliseconds to process the race of an individual. How's that for horrifying? It takes you about 120 milliseconds, that's a little bit more than a tenth of a second for your brain to respond differently depending on the gender of the face that you just saw in the picture. And this is flashing up pictures so fast you're not even consciously aware and confident that you saw something. Okay, suppose I tell you that we just flashed up a picture of a face. What was the sex of that individual? I don't know, I couldn't even see a male. And at a higher than chance level, 120 milliseconds is all our brains need to process that. All sorts of psychological manipulations of categorization showing that, for example, racial categorizations of people are incredibly flimsy. It takes totally minor manipulations of people to switch how they categorize people by, gen by race. Gender doesn't switch anywhere near as easily. It is a very, very hardwired dichotomy we have. And you look at any other species out there, you look at any primate on Earth, and somebody in the group gave birth last night, and everybody is at some point going to come over and pull the new kid's legs open and sniff down there and ask, is it a boy or a girl? 
So amid the fact that biologically sex is on a continuum and we're actually beginning to recognize that in some realms, nonetheless, our brains are really wired to dichotomize by gender very, very rapidly. So I don't think gender is about to disappear as a category. But luckily we do have this wonderful frontal cortex that can help us monitor our actions and not offend people in that way. Um, but perhaps a, a corollary of this evolution too, um, this is a question from um, uh, Jao Fiadero, or Yao Fiadero, I apologize if I've mispronounced your name. Um, and uh, he brings up the question of whether or not humans then are the only species to suffer from dissociative identity disorder. Are we the only ones who not only have this sense of secondary self, um, but also are plagued by the possibility of that going awry? Um, well, answering that is hampered by the fact that baboons always lie on questionnaires, so it's very hard <laughs> to be certain of the results there. But I think it's pretty clear, I mean, as I sort of noted in the talk there, if you're a rhesus monkey, you can have an automatic, implicit, on the scale of milliseconds, identification with the group you belong to. But you don't do something that humans do when it comes to these categorizations, which is belong to multiple hierarchies at once to belong to multiple categories, to shift which one is most important to you, depending on circumstance that you may not even consciously be aware of. Like one of the classic sort of demonstrations in shifting categorization minds, this like every, every like parent of a kid taking math knows this one, which is study carried out on Asian women taking a math test and they were given in psychological prime beforehand. In half the case, the person handing out the exams mentions beforehand that, oh, you know, it's well known that on the average, women don't do as well as math as men do. In the other case, half the time saying, oh, it's well known that on the average, Asian Americans do better at math than non-Asian Americans. Sit in that room, and if you were an Asian American woman and you were primed beforehand to think about your gender, math performance went down. If you were primed to think about your ethnicity, math performance went up. We belong to all these different categories simultaneously, and we flip within seconds somebody who is an other, who is a them, and your amygdala is screaming like crazy, puts on the same stupid baseball cap as the team that you would be willing to kill for, and suddenly they are in us, and your brain spins on a dime at that point. Hmm. How do you think, and this is a question from a couple people, Jordan Presnick and Olivier Mercier, I'm putting your questions together, which is, what can we learn from how our brains are different from primates that can help us understand how we're going to have a relationship with artificial intelligence? So where are we in terms of how close are we to have a sentient artificial intelligence? And is, you know, how, how, do we, how are we going to get there? And how are we going to deal with them, it, the things? <laughs> Well, from what I understand, I think the much more pertinent question is how they're going to choose to deal with us. Hopefully, they, they will be benevolent overlords. Um, and in that regard, I'm very, very weak in this area. Um, but people I know who are knowledgeable basically are 
wetting their pants in terror when they think about that it is going to be an unrecognizable gap of cognition. You know, it takes some, like one of the sound bites in, in ethology is, like ethology is the process of interviewing another animal, but interviewing it in their language. And like, I know people who could think like geckos, who because they've spent the last 40 years living with geckos, or they can think like whatever their species is, the gap between us and I think what generalized artificial intelligence is going to produce is going to be just unrecognizable. So Amy Shelton has a great question. What has changed most about your understanding of humans in the past few years? Oh, God. <laughs> um, <laughs> go ahead, ask an easy question, why don't you? <laughs> what has changed about humans? Um, Weirdly, and there's like very little reason to justify this, um, there's like actual vague hints of proclivities, of suggestions of maybe feeling slightly optimistic about our prospects as a species, um, which is totally against my character. I am, I am extremely pessimistic about virtually anything. Like I can find the, the downside of almost anything, but when looking at the human condition, if you want to look at an amazing book, look at a book by uh, Steven Pinker, The Better Angels of Our Nature, who documents amid like the the unimaginable horrors of stuff like ISIS or Boko Haram or whatever, Donald Trump or whatever's going on these days. Um, like you look at those, nonetheless, you look at a longer perspective over the course of centuries or millennia, and we're getting much better as a species. Our capacity for empathy, who we view as an us, sort of the, the umbrella of protection we're willing to extend, our ability to say things like, it's not him, it's his disease, and to dissociate between the two. I think in recent years, I've like vaguely gotten more optimistic about our prospects. And when you talk about um, empathy and our ability to feel for ourselves and you know the fact that tit for tat, the reciprocity seems to be present in many other species, it makes me wonder whether compassion, which is more than just putting yourself in someone else's shoes, it's actually you know, doing something about it and, and you know, beyond just your own um, needs, whether that is something that we are really good at, is that something that is different about humans, um, or are there other species that are compassionate? Um, again, we're compassionate in just abstracted realms we care about organisms on the other side of the planet who are refugees. Like, go figure that. We will act morally in a context of an individual where we know for certain we will never encounter this person again because we're getting on a plane in an hour and flying back home from the other side of the planet kind of thing. When we look at those features and sort of what makes sort of our most impressive humans, impressive in those domains, Ironically, what I've come to sort of recognize is the frontal cortex actually has very little to do with that realm. 
Um, this was a great study, a scientist, I love his work, Joshua Green, Josh Green at Harvard, a neuropsychologist there, who's done these studies where he sticks people in brain scanners and these incredibly clever manipulative paradigms where somebody is doing some task and each time they get an answer right, they get some reward at the end and there's a motivation to do well. And he invents these totally like just concocted situations where the person thinks they suddenly have opportunities where they can cheat, where the machine isn't working right and they can say whether they had predicted correctly beforehand and you can monitor people's accuracy rates and see if during periods where they have the opportunity to cheat, do they cheat or not? And you've got them in a brain scanner so you can see what's going on in their brains as they're wrestling with Satan and deciding whether to do it or not. So what he sees with the people who cheat, as soon as the opportunities to cheat arise, their frontal cortex goes through the roof. Should I do it? Should I not? If I do it, is there better ways of doing it than other ways? How can I make it seem as natural as possible? Yes, you do the frontal cortex, you use your frontal cortex to do the harder thing when it's the right thing to do, self you also use it like crazy when you're lying because in that case that is something cognitively dissonant that takes work in order to control your facial expressions and your tone of voice and all of that so the frontal cortex is working like crazy in these people when they're having the opportunity to cheat and the degree of activation was not predictive as to how much they actually would cheat but then about a third of the people never cheated at all so the question becomes at that point, when they have the opportunity, what's going on in their frontal cortex? And Green, who was actually trained as a philosopher, frames it not neurobiologically. He frames it as, is this an issue of will or grace? Do you do the right thing because you've got super duper frontal cortical neurons that give you more willpower than anybody else out there? Or is it a state of some neurobiological grace? And what he sees in those studies is the people who never cheat, who never lie, their frontal cortex could be in a coma at that point. It doesn't budge in the slightest. It's not willpower. It's not doing the harder thing because you just don't do that. It's automatic. It's reflective. It's like in their spinal cord as to how primitive the wiring is. And that fits exactly when you look at when people do amazing heroic things. You know, the, the kid who falls in the river and everybody is standing there like headless chickens. What do we do? What do we do? And somebody leaps in and saves the kid. And it's always the same thing afterward. When they're being interviewed, what were you thinking when you ran into the burning building? What do you... And it's always the same answer. I wasn't thinking. Before I knew it, I had dived into the river. It's automatic. And what you see is that fits perfectly with the whole world of moral development in kids, where you have this whole world of cognitive levels of moral reasoning, and that predicts squat about who's actually going to be honest. It mostly predicts what like prestige of university you'll get tenure in if you study moral development or psychology sort of thing. Ooh, what highfalutin Kohlberg stage are you at? And that sort of thing, the cognition of it predicts zero about actual moral behavior in hard, dangerous, frightening circumstances. It's not because there's more willpower. It's something completely outside the realm of the frontal cortex. It's people who were raised where that is simply, you don't do stuff like that. You don't look the other way. And that's the studies that came through. 
who sheltered people, refugees from the Nazis at great menace to themselves, who takes in people who've been left homeless, all of that sort of thing. And it's got nothing to do with religiosity, level of education, IQ, socioeconomic status. It's whether it was made a moral imperative when you were a kid. It's not a question of willpower. You don't do the wrong thing at something It's not even tempting. You don't do it. So I have one last question, which is a follow-up on that. And I want to bring it back to your work on baboons and the beautiful writings you, you've um, given us about the troop in which those aggressive males died off. And uh, it was left with this very almost compassionate troop where you know the behavior was very different. So in that troop, were there any lessons that you learned from how the new males that came into the troop were trained to behave uh, so differently with, with such different, um, you know, sort of kind behaviors that we can apply to raising our own kids? Um, well, this was, again, this was, this was my original troop that I started with when I was 20. And some years later, there was a disaster having to do with them living in proximity with humans, which never turns out to be a good thing for non-human primates. And half the males in my troop were killed uh, by humans, and it was the more aggressive, less socio-affiliated males. And what you were left with was a troop which uniquely had a two-to-one female-to-male ratio, and the males who were left were these socially affiliative, nice guys who didn't beat up on others when they were in a bad mood. They didn't displace aggression. They did lots of grooming. They actually groomed a female back when she had groomed him for two hours, kind of thing which is unheard of in sort of male baboondom. And what I then saw over sort of 15 years afterward was as new males joined the troop, adolescents who had grown up elsewhere, it took them about six months to take on this, this behavioral style. And the question was, what sort of mediated that cultural transmission? What I thought initially was maybe there's some sort of self-selection going on. When a baboon male hits puberty and he's beginning to like transfer to another, he'll go check out this troop for a week and that one and then wind up 30 miles away. So maybe there was something self-selective. I always call this the, well, who else would choose to go to read college model of sort of explaining this, that there was self-selection beforehand. But it turned out when males first joined this troop as adolescents, they were just as much violent jerks as males joining any other troop. What happened over the next six months was, I think the key thing was driven by the females. The key thing there was, in a normal baboon troop, if you're a female, you are constantly worried about what jerk male in a bad mood is going to displace aggression onto you. 50% of baboon aggression is displacement onto an innocent bystander. It's this world of like total lack of control and predictability if you were female in there. And suddenly, this is a troop where instead, the males don't do crap like that. Stress hormone levels in the females were far lower. And what you saw then was, as new males would join the troop, females could afford to be more pro-social to them. Join an average baboon troop as an adolescent male, and it's more than three months before a female first grooms you. In this troop, it was about five days. The females were much more socially affiliative. They outnumbered the males, and the males who were there were not jerks. And what you see there is, in a setting like that, 
Over the course of months, when male adolescent baboons are treated nicely, they default into being much calmer and much less aggressive. It's a default model. They didn't have to be taught. If they were treated more nicely, they stopped being aggressive jerks. And what's the extraordinary thing is baboons, savannah baboons, are like the textbook examples of male-dominated, aggressive, stratified societies. This is the inevitability of baboon behavior, and all it takes is about six months in a different social setting, and these guys adapt a different, completely different behavioral style. And basically, if baboons could do that, we don't have a leg to stand on if we say that there's certain inevitabilities about human social systems. Well, I can't think of a better place to end. Um, so for those of you who want to listen to the episode, uh, you can find us on iTunes. It's Inquiring Minds. You can um, follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show. And I'm Indre Viss on Twitter. Robert Sapolsky, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. Uh, thanks. Thank you. I love Robert Sapolsky. He is charming, endearing, fascinating to, to no end. And the work that he does on stress and relating it from the primate world to the human world, endlessly interesting. The one thing I, I know about his work that he, he didn't really talk about, I think it was really fascinating, is when you look at stroke, stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S., higher than so many other ones that we talk about in a much larger way. A lot of his work is now being referenced towards how do we actually stop stress response at the site of trauma like this? Like when a stroke happens, you know, we're essentially like depriving the brain of oxygen at the site. And some of that has been has been associated with the stress response that your body has to that trauma. Uh, and if we can inhibit that stress response, which is a larger implication of his work, uh, we might be able to limit the damage that is done by stroke. And that's what I, one of the things I love about his work is that, you know, he could just sit back in his armchair and philosophize until the end of time and not worry about these nitty gritty details, let, you know, other people figure them out. But he seems to get involved at every level of his research, even at these like, you know, very specific, very detailed places. And, you know, that 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 I have a lot of respect for that. I, I have to say, it's surprising that he described himself as endlessly pessimistic, because I always associated his work with being uh, very optimistic. But I found the discussion on gender really fascinating and somewhat surprising. Yeah, well, I totally wanted to call him out on it because he was so he was he was so nice about it in the actual Q&A. But in the Nautilus article, I mean, he makes no bones about it. He was just like, absolutely not. Are we ever going to get away from, you know, the sort of dichotomy of gender that we are animals that categorize? That's what we do. And we will always be categorizing according to gender. And, you know, regardless of whether or not he's right. And you know, I, I see a lot of truth to what he's saying and I, it was a very compelling and a beautifully written piece as it always is but i was surprised at how he kind of backed up from that pretty pretty strong claim that he made in the magazine 120 milliseconds is really fast for you to be identifying uh, something like that especially with subliminal messages uh, but yeah i agree i mean i think there is a runaway prefrontal cortex a little bit in terms of of us trying to get away from um from that idea and you know, he really related it back there. There is no escaping this to a certain extent. Like there is something hardwired. I And I hesitate to use that term anytime we talk about neuroscience. I feel like it's an overused term, but I it, it is uh, surprising. And I think you should take a, a, a larger stance on it. I understand probably why he wants to soften that a little bit. 
Um, but sure, if that's what no, the data says, that's what the data says. I get it. But I think it also teaches us something like a lot of his work does really important about the human condition, which is that this is something we do. It might not be the right thing to do in terms of the way our society is built today, but it's still something that we do. And so we need to understand it if we want to actually make some changes. And so, you know, I think that 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 was what I found compelling about both the Nautilus piece. And of course, you know, it was hard to limit myself to just about 30 minutes of questioning with him because the list I had of questions went on and on and on and on. And we had some great questions from the audience, too, which was which was always fun. And in a strange way. His work is almost the poster child for modern conservation for some of these uh, primates in, in Africa, because the amount that we're learning about the human condition, particularly about something as universal as stress, from studying baboons and, and other primates is remarkable. And for us to uh, potentially sit back and allow their uh, natural habitats to be destroyed, uh, it affects all of us. It doesn't affect just the the preservation of an important species. It affects uh, humanity for decades to come. Sure. I mean, if we bring them into captivity and watch them, we can't get an idea of what it is that they actually do as a species out in the wild that can be really informative in terms of where we came from, from our own ancestors. Who's going to watch them sniff their their newborn genitals? (laughs) I'm sure there will be people lining up to do that. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and all you anonymous people. This episode is sponsored by Zevia. Zevia is a zero-calorie, naturally sweetened soda that's clearly different. It has no sugar and no calories, but it's still somehow really delicious. Zevia is available in 15 different flavors like cream soda, black cherry, cola, ginger ale, and even tonic water. Always zero calories, Zevia makes amazing guilt-free cocktails for the holidays, whiskey and ginger ale, gin and tonic, and so many more. Plus, Zevia is giving away thousands of free six-packs. To check it out, go to zevia.com slash podcast. That's Z-E-V-I-A dot com slash podcast. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas. What else should they send us, Kishore? How they deal with stress. (laughs) How you do Funko Pop. Funko Pop. Uh, your own stress remedies or anything else you'd like to Inquiring Minds at ClimateDesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Baboon Enthusiast. Adam Isaac, in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, City Lab, Medium, at least a quarter of the internet and the Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See me stressing out about December all month there. See you next week. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.